31. And if you have your Bible there with you, please uh, turn in your scripture to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark will be reading in chapter uh, 2. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22 uh, this morning. You'll remember we're journeying through the Gospel of of Mark under the broad theme of getting the uh, the gospel right, and uh, as we walk with the Lord Jesus, this is what He is helping us to do uh, to understand what the what the good news really is about His uh, about His coming. And we've seen wonderful things already as He began to preach the gospel uh, of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe uh, in in Him. And here in chapter two, we've seen Him. Uh, doing wonderful things and pronouncing his authority to forgive sins uh, and cleansing those who are are sick and diseased. And also that he has come uh, for sinners. He's come for those who are not well, uh, who know they need a savior. And that's why he's come. He's come for us. And so uh, we've seen wonderful things. So we pick up the reading here in Mark chapter two, uh, beginning at verse uh, 18. This is the ever living uh, and abiding Word of the living God. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, that's that's Jesus. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that as we've just sung, uh, your love is divine. It is uh, excels all other loves. And so we thank you that as we walk with Jesus uh, through the gospel story, Lord, we might get the gospel right. We might get the good news about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and who he has come for, uh, that we would get that right, that we would rejoice again today. Uh, in the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as uh, we have been reading here in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and especially here in, uh, in chapter 2, as we reflect on what's happening here in the life of Jesus, uh, we might come to the conclusion that uh, one, one Bible commentator came to when he, when he wrote this. Jesus uh, was the most... Uh, disturbing person uh, in history. As you uh, read through the gospel, especially this chapter, you might get the impression that Jesus is the most disturbing person in history simply because wherever he goes, there seems to be uh, a great commotion uh, and things are happening. And so, for instance, Jesus heals a a paralyzed man and and claims authority to forgive sins. And, And the folks are up in arms. How can this be? Only God can forgive sins. And last time, Jesus calls a, uh, a despised tax collector to follow him, of all things, and then uh, has a meal in, in his home with other known public sinners and tax collectors and uh, causes a, a stir in the crowd. 
One wrote, all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Jesus, the most disturbing person in history. When he comes, people respond to him in one way or the other. Last time we saw Jesus say to the folks, it is not the well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Said one, Jesus Christ is the divine physician and pharmacist, and his prescriptions are never out of balance. And so we come uh, to our text this morning. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. Uh, have, you ever, uh, have you ever been troubled that someone else was happy? You ever had that in your life? It's a strange thing. But you ever been troubled yourself because someone else was joyful or happy? I remember uh, many years ago being at a wedding when pictures of the wedding party were being taken in a beautiful garden in between the wedding service and the reception and uh, all the bridesmaids and groomsmen were there, and as we were taking pictures, I couldn't help but notice that, that off of the side, off the side somewhere, that one of the bridesmaids was, was sitting on a bench uh, all by herself, uh, looking uh, particularly uh, unhappy. And I don't know this is for sure, but I was left to, left to wonder as I, as I saw that. I said, could it be that, that she was troubled uh, that someone else was happy? Weddings are a time, of course, of celebration. Uh, you'll remember that the first miracle uh, recorded that Jesus ever did was a miracle at the wedding in Cana, uh, where he changed uh, some large potfuls of water into the best wine of all. Think of your own wedding, if you can remember, and your spouse could do no wrong, and you had nothing but uh, goo-goo eyes for each other as you were at that wedding day. Love was in the air, and how you feasted. Uh, a beautiful meal, no doubt, perhaps catered at your wedding, perhaps lovingly prepared by your family. It was quite a day, wasn't it? Because weddings are times of joy when the bridegroom comes. Um, just like the worship of God is meant to be a time of joy. The problem is, of course, wrote one, some people come to church looking like they had just read the will of their rich aunt and learned that she had given everything to her pet hamster. That's the problem. Weddings, we know, are a time of joy. So is the worship of God. But it doesn't always appear that way. Weddings, you see, are times of joy. The beginning of a marriage uh, is a time for new beginnings. And the Bible says when a woman and man are married, of course, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. There's a, a leaving of one relationship in the beginning of a new relationship. And we all know what happens when that leaving of parents doesn't happen. Trouble. When you get married and you try to cling to the old life as if you were not married, trouble uh, ensues. Well, you see, Mark 2, there were those who were troubled because others were happy because the coming of, of Jesus, uh, people were, were feasting. Now, we saw that in the last passage, Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And we also see in Mark 2 that Jesus is continually having to do battle with the Pharisees and their scribes over many different issues. Mark 2, 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, 
uh, Mark 2, 16, uh, that we read last week. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat and uh, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here in verse 18, again, they're, they're questioning. And then later in verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful? And so on and on it goes. As Jesus comes on the scene, uh, he is provoking constant questions and antagonism from the religious guard of the day. Why, 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 why? And now Mark has already shown us in a wonderful way in this gospel, the unique authority and uh, power of Jesus. And we've seen that in different ways. Jesus speaks with authority through his word, unlike the Pharisees. Jesus commanded evil spirits to leave, and they left. So we saw that, the great authority and power. But Mark has also shown us, hasn't he, the great compassion and love of Jesus and the attitude of Jesus toward those who are considered the outcasts of society by touching the untouchable, right? The woman with a high fever or the the man with leprosy. Jesus reaches out and and touches them, and all who came to him he received. All who were sick, uh, he was there. Jesus, in fact, seeks them out, calls them to repentance, these outcasts. Uh, And uh, now Mark is going to show us uh, that Jesus himself very clearly taught that his coming, his preaching, his life and uh, his work was all about bringing something new. Bringing something new. The first thing we have, we have a troubling, we have a troubling question. Now, John's disciples, verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This incident is recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very important story. That simply means, because all the Gospel writers include it, uh, it's a story we uh, definitely need to pay attention to. So what's happening? Well, John's disciples and the Pharisees would fast, but these disciples of Jesus uh, would go on eating and drinking. Mark makes clear that uh, these disciples were observing a fast right at this time. And in fact, celebration may have given the occasion uh, for this concern. Remember the last passage, it was Jesus with sinners and tax collectors feasting in the home of Levi. So perhaps this is even the occasion uh, for what happens here. But here, John's disciples have the same question as the Pharisees. Why are you not engaging in this same religious practice? Now, we know that Jesus fasted for 40 days. We know in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples on both fasting and prayer. In the book of Acts, we see the church seeking the Lord together in fasting and prayer. The idea being you're setting aside for a time the needs of your physical body in order to have a concentrated time of calling out to the Lord, communing with the Lord, earnestly seeking his aid and wisdom. This is a part of the Christian life. There's another kind of fasting found in the scripture, and that was embraced and elaborated on by the Pharisees. Fasting as an expression of of mourning and sadness. You may know that there's only one place in the Old Testament, in the law of God, where fasting is is required. And that was on the annual day uh, of atonement, when... Uh, The high priest would go into the uh, most holy place to meet with God and offer atonement for the people. It was a national day of repentance and mourning for sin. That one day of the year when all would recognize their sin, mourn for their sin, and the high priest would offer atonement. 
But there were, were other times when John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees would fast, uh, that they took this idea and added other days of fasting. In fact, in the New Testament, you remember that the Pharisees, at one time, were told the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Uh, we're told usually that it was probably Monday and Thursday is what, what they did. And when they did that, their hair would be unkept, um, their clothes untidy, their faces uh, unwashed. And this to them was a sign of godliness. A constant external, at least, expression of sorrow and sadness. And so when they see Jesus' disciples, they're saying, why are the disciples of Jesus not doing this same thing? Now, of course, Jesus would, uh, you may know, condemn this kind of fasting uh, in Matthew chapter 6 when he says this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. They want everyone to know that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a good fast to the Lord. Not before others, but, but secretly crying out to the Lord. In fact, in the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 58, uh, the Lord tells his people, listen, I wasn't, I'm, not, I'm not really concerned about ashes on your head and those kind of things. What matters in a fast is I want you to fast from your sin. I want you to fast from ungodliness. I want you to fast from, from going your own way. The heart of the fast was what's going on in your heart. Not external show. What God is concerned about is the heart. But here in Mark 2, those who come to Jesus are troubled then Because while they are fasting and giving expression to mourning and sadness externally, Jesus and his disciples are feasting. You ever been troubled when someone else is happy? Well, you know, it isn't really maybe that foreign to us. Even though the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, our first reaction when someone else has reason to rejoice is not always, shall we say, godly. Have you ever found that in your own life? You hear that your neighbor has received a promotion at work, and you've been working there all your life, and your first reaction, of course, is, well, whoop. Um. Or you've been working on your garden for weeks, maybe here in the spring, weeks on end. Still looks terrible uh, when, uh, when the lady down the street uh, you know, tries her hand at it for the first time, and voila, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful flower bed, and she's all excited. Or maybe you've been coming to church all your life, trying to follow God as best you possibly can, uh, always searching for that uh, joy of knowing that you're a child of God, and a new Christian comes along off the street who seems to be bursting with what you've never known. And you're troubled. Uh, Because someone else is happy, and you're saying to yourself, something's not right. Religion is not about joy, it's about sadness. Religion is not about excitement, it's about boredom. Religion is not not about being alert and awake, it's about sleeping and dead. And no smiles allowed. We're mourning here as they come to Jesus. So there's a troubling question. And then, of course, we have the answer of Jesus. Why are your disciples not doing what we are doing? And Jesus said to them, verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast... While the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
Matthew put it this way. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? These answers fairly simple. Wedding guests don't fast. His presence brings joy like that of a, a wedding party. To follow him uh, is to enter a joy-filled life. Now, have you ever been, let's say, to a wedding when the couple is announced, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and, uh, you know, for the first time, and then you hear this deathly silence and grim faces? No. No. Uh, ever been to a wedding reception where the bride, the groom, bridesmaids, groomsmen sit down at the table and maybe there's a roast? And there's steak, and there's potatoes, and there's green beans, and there's blueberry pie coming for dessert, but no one eats. And you say, well, what's wrong with the food? And you say, well, we're fasting today. Well, as one put it, marriage, or as one put it, mourning does not befit a marriage scene. Mourning does not befit a marriage scene. While he is with them, says Jesus, his disciples cannot fast. The word cannot there means they're not able to. They don't have the power to. It's just not, it's just not possible that when the bridegroom has come, that you would be mourning at his coming. But he does envision a day, Jesus, when he will be taken away from them. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast uh, in that day. Uh, this is an allusion to uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaking of the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, the Messiah. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That day is going to come, says Jesus. He's talking about the cross. He's going to be taken away. It has a, has a sense of violence by force. In fact, in the, in, the, in the Greek, it starts with the word taken away. There shall be taken away from them the bridegroom. Taken away. He's talking about the crucifixion that was to come when he would be uh, arrested. And uh, when the cross comes, says Jesus, uh, then you will fast. Uh, you will mourn. But even then, it will only be for a time. John sixteen twenty goes like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, you will weep and lament. He's talking to them, remember, about the fact that he has to go away. But he's going to send a counselor to come. This is what he says, John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, that is mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into, uh, will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, says Jesus, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, says Jesus, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. When would he see him again? When he rose again from the dead. So there's going to come a time when, that when you're going to give the signs of mourning, when I am taken to the cross. But now's not that time, says Jesus. 
Now is not that time. The bridegroom is here. Uh, the guests of the bridegroom can't fast when the bridegroom is with them. The guests do not mourn in his presence. They feast uh, and they rejoice. Now, this image of a bridegroom, uh, as related to the Lord and his people, would have been very familiar to those who first heard these words. They would have remembered, uh, they would have remembered their synagogue Sunday school classes of years ago when they heard the story of Hosea. They would have heard how a prophet of the Lord, Hosea, was to endure marriage to an adulterous wife to show how Israel, God's people, had been unfaithful to the Lord. They would have heard how God's people had been unfaithful to their marriage vow to the Lord. They would have heard God's promise, though, that there would come a day. What kind of day? Well, Hosea 2.16 says this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And the folks here in Mark 2 would have been reminded of the words of the prophet Isaiah. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. I have come. It is, um, it is in fact, uh, it is in fact uh, your, your wedding day. And so my disciples are not fasting because the bridegroom is here. I am, Jesus is saying, I am uh, the Lord. In John 3, 28, John the Baptist is dealing with the disciples when they asked him a question about Jesus and they'd, they had... Uh, they had noticed uh, that uh, more disciples were following Jesus than were following John, and they get a little jealous of their leader. And uh, you remember what John told them? He said, listen, I am not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bride. Don't worry about me. Uh, the, the friend of the bride rejoices when, when, when the folks uh, go to the bridegroom. I must become lesser, and, and, and he must become greater. He must increase, and I must decrease. But he is the bridegroom. He is the one you are to be married to. Look here, says John, uh, this Jesus has come for his bride. The church and who I am, and the, he's come for the church. Who am I to stand in the way of such, of such love? But the point here simply is this. The answer of Jesus tells us that Jesus' presence means joy, not sadness, Jesus' presence means that our joy is, is, is found in Him. And with the coming of Jesus, a new day has dawned. He comes with words of mercy and beauty and, 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 and gladness. And to recognize Him as the bridegroom who has come uh, fills our hearts with joy and rejoicing so that we celebrate and feast in His presence. And mourning simply is not appropriate in the presence of the bridegroom. Uh, this is an important thing for us to take to heart um, because the fact of the matter is uh, sometimes we might give the impression, too many professing Christians give the impression that um, you know, we, we, we are meant to be going around in sackcloth and ashes rather than feasting in the presence of the bridegroom because he is, he is in fact Near. Just think about how, how ridiculous this would be. I mean, when you, um, I don't think this will ever happen, but when the Phillies win a playoff game, um, you know, and you're a professing Phillies fan, 
and, uh, and they win the game and you're at the stadium, do you sadly and stoically sit unmoved in the stands when the victory has been won? No, you don't do that. You, you celebrate. Then why are so many church, professing Christians in churches unmoved at the good news? Whether they're seniors or youth, children, married, single, doesn't matter. Why is that? Because Jesus says, when the bridegroom has come, uh, there is joy and there is feasting in, in him. And mourning is not appropriate when you know that the king has come. Now, Jesus goes on to make this very plain to us uh, by giving two very picturesque examples of what it means that, that he has come as the bridegroom. And he has come to make all things new. The first one that he gives, the first example he gives, would warm the heart of my mother, uh, who was very familiar with the image of patched and clothes. Uh, I ripped uh, out a few knees in my day. And this is what Jesus says to understand this better. No one, he says, verse 21, sews a piece of unshrunk cloth or new cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. He said, nobody does that. Nobody takes a new piece of clothing, unshrunk, that means it hasn't been exposed to moisture and heat and pressure and all that kind of stuff. No one takes a new piece of, of cloth, puts it on an old, that is a worn out, already, you know, brittle kind of, already worn out garment. No one does that. Uh, think of it this way. Your daughter is getting married and you say to her, I have my old wedding dress. Uh, in the closet, uh, but it's got this little rip. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go down to Wedding Dresses Are Us and find ourselves a brand new wedding dress. And then I'm going to cut a nice piece out of that new dress and I'm going to sew it over the top of the rip in the old one. How does that sound? And your daughter says, no, 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 that doesn't sound good at all. That's not going to work. Not only have you ruined the beautiful new dress, uh, but you haven't really fixed the old. All right, so that's maybe for the ladies. Okay, so you're, you're a young guy this morning, you're a man. Let's say our 2010 Honda Odyssey breaks down. I forget to put oil in it, and the engine seizes. Uh, we go over to Turnersville Auto Mall and pick up a brand new Chevy Suburban. And uh, the elders give me a hand removing the engine from the Suburban and putting it in the 2010 Honda Odyssey. Uh, not only have you wrecked the new Suburban, uh, but you haven't fixed, you haven't fixed the old. Or maybe it's not quite connecting yet. We used to live in, in New York State and there were Amish folks all around us. We had Amish neighbors. So let's say one day one of our Amish neighbors comes by in their horse and buggy and, and the horse dies on the road. And I say, well, hey, I'll take this, uh, let, let's get this engine out of my car and let's hook it up to your reins. You say, no, 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 that doesn't work. Jesus is the king, bringing in his kingdom, and it will not do to take a piece of Jesus, half of Jesus, a part of Jesus, and to try to, try to attach him to your old life. It will not work, says Jesus. Um, He's saying in the clearest possible terms, you can't treat the Christian faith as you would one more menu item at a religious McDonald's. You know, you go to McDonald's and you say, I'll have the fries, a Coke, a Big Mac, maybe an apple pie for dessert. 
Well, the religious McDonald's, it goes like this. I'll take a little bit of my old life. I'll take a little bit of Christianity. I'll take a little bit of me, myself, and I-ism. And uh, I'll live like my non-Christian neighbor pie for dessert. No, 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 says Jesus. You can't patch a little piece of uh, Christ onto your old life. You can't take a bit of Jesus and try to add him onto your old life of self. And in the Pharisees' case, you can't simply add the teaching of Jesus to your uh, settled commitment to works righteousness, thinking somehow you can earn God's favor, and then I'll just add a little bit of Jesus onto that superstructure of my conviction that actually it's all about my own strength. With just a little bit of... You can't do that, says Jesus. That's called syncretism. That means mixing a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the Bible, with what you actually believe at heart. You can't add Jesus, for instance, to the American way of life. Just like you can't add Jesus to the Chinese way of life. uh, Or the New Zealand way of life. You can't take part of Jesus and patch him on to the old life. No, instead, those, those old clothes need to go. New clothes need to be put on. And that's exactly what the Bible says in the New Testament. We have to put off the old self and all its desires, and we need to put on the new created in Christ Jesus for holiness and godliness in Him. Say you sometimes, you know, do you treat Jesus as a patch? I think sometimes we do. The clothing of your life you think is basically intact, but you could use a patch here and there. The Pharisees thought they could gain favor with God through their meritorious religious acts of worship, And perhaps they would give Jesus a hearing too. Perhaps they would add Jesus to their wonderful plan for their life, but only if he fit in. They were looking for more religious ritual, more ceremony, but what they needed was more of of Jesus. Now here's the thing. We have a plan for our life too. And if we can easily and conveniently add a patch or two of Jesus to our lives and our life plan, that sounds good. Just a tweak here and there. Jesus says, no. I am not, says Jesus, a band-aid. I am a physician who takes you into the operating room of God and opens you up and, and gives you a heart transplant. And your old life and your old loves and your old habits and your old passions are pushed out, transformed, all things new. Wrote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you cannot receive Christ in bits In bits and pieces. Have you been trying to do that? Jesus says, that'll end in disaster. I've come as the bridegroom. One more time, says Jesus, going a little deeper, verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine's destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine uh, is for fresh Wine skins. Now this practice is a little more foreign to us. Let me explain a minute here. We're not talking here about wine bottles. Um, The flesh and bones of animals, usually goats, were removed, leaving the skins intact as they could be. 
And then they could then be used as containers for liquids. At first they were fairly elastic, but when they got old, these skins would lose that quality and could easily burst under stress. New wine continues to ferment and would push out those skins. So you put new wine in old, so that's just not going to work. You'd have a mess. Spilled wine, burst skins. New wine, says Jesus, must be put into new or fresh, fresh wineskins. Here's the thing. Jesus is saying He did not come into the world to patch us up uh, or simply to be added to the old. He came to make us new. He came to make all things new. The story just before us tells us Jesus is the physician who comes for those who are not well, unless we think that somehow Jesus comes just to put a band-aid over the wound or to prescribe some kind of temporary relief of the pain. The very next story tells us, no, Jesus has come to, to make all things new. Jesus has come not to be added to your life, to set up shop and come to live in your old life of sin. No, no, no. New wine must be put into new, fresh wineskins. And notice Jesus says if we attempt to treat Jesus, if we attempt to treat Jesus in the gospel in this fashion, the result will be disastrous. Wine and old wineskins, trying to fit Jesus into our old life, burst the skins. Wine is spilled everywhere. If you think that you can have a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of the gospel, you destroy the gospel. And if you think that a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the gospel can be added to your old life of sin and self, you will destroy yourself and deceive yourself and come to find out in the end that you have no gospel at all. Someone who has embraced a new life in Christ says Jesus must say goodbye to the old life of sin. I'm not just bringing new teaching, says Jesus, but that new teaching Need new hearts. I can't, I'm not bringing new teaching to fit into your old life of sin, but all things must be made new. Out with the old and in with the new. Instead of mourning, gladness. Instead of sorrow, rejoicing. Instead of faith in self, a faith in Christ. And there must be no attempt to mix the two together. It is impossible, says Jesus, to do. Just like the answer for a cup of lukewarm, sour, curdly milk is not to pour in some fresh, cold milk and add it to the curdly milk, but to get another glass and pour and pour a fresh cup. We are, says Paul, to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God, alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians Uh, He says there's no such thing as a Christian drunkard. There's no such thing as a Christian thief. There's no such thing as a Christian idolater. There's no such thing as a Christian homosexual. There's only Christians who at one time were this, but such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified in the name of Christ Jesus. All things become new. Not only your outward practice, your inward desires. All things new. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem was, the Pharisees and the disciples here of John, is that they were all about the ceremonial and the ritual. And Jesus was about the spiritual heart transformation. We must never be satisfied, friends, with a formal, outward, keeping up of appearance Christianity when Jesus tells us He comes to make all things new. A new day has dawned. 
uh, a new life. A new life begun. Not complete yet, but it's begun. We are a work in progress. Sinclair Ferguson wrote about seeing a church sign as he was driving down the road, a great sign which said, uh, Workshop inside, showroom uh, upstairs. Isn't that great? He's talking about how the church is workshop, workshop right here inside the church. The showroom, what we will be, uh, well, that's, 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 that's upstairs. That's still, uh, that's still to come. We are still a work in progress. But friends, the new wine of the gospel is poured forth into new hearts. New wine into new hearts, sin forgiven, new creation, Holy Spirit dwelling within, united to Christ, children of God, citizens of his kingdom, sheep in his pasture, branches on the vine, parts of his body, stones in his temple, no condemnation, Jesus has paid it all, sin defeated, Satan defeated, new life, eternal life, inexpressible joy and the hope of glory. This is all that that new wine that comes into the hearts of those whom the Lord has transformed by His glorious power. And that's why, no doubt, the Bible says, taste and see uh, that the Lord is good. Friends, the bridegroom, says Jesus, has come. He was taken away to the cross for a little while. But He rose again from the dead. And then He said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, says Jesus, behold, says Jesus, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The bridegroom is here. The wedding day has come. New life has begun through faith in Him. Therefore, says Jesus, we may rejoice and be glad. This is what the Lord holds out for us. This is what He's doing in His coming. We have no reason to mourn. The Lord Jesus has come as our Savior, our King, and our Lord, so that all who put their faith and trust in Him uh, might, might not perish, but have everlasting life in Him. May the Lord give you grace and joy uh, as you reflect on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's come to do, not only in the lives of others, but in your life as you put your faith and hope and trust in him. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of Scripture. We thank you for these images that the Lord gives to us, these pictures he gives to us of, of what it means for the Lord Jesus to come as the, as the bridegroom for whom uh, your people have been waiting of old. But now he has come. He is here And Lord, that you have called us then, even as you called Levi, to come and and follow, to put our faith and trust in him, to know the blessing of being united to this Savior, united to this Jesus, that we would call him our, our husband, that we are the bride of Christ. And Lord, that you are then making all things new within us. So we pray today, Lord, that you would fill us indeed with that new wine of the gospel, all that you have to teach us, all the glorious truths of Scripture, as you pour those into the hearts that you have transformed by your Holy Spirit, that we receive that truth even today, and that we would know what it means to go forth rejoicing, glad that we have a Savior who has come, who is Christ the Lord. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.